Good morning. My name is Dean, and uh, I invite you uh, to into the Word of God as I read Galatians 5, 16 to 26 this morning. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. For if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to open up the Word uh, with you and for you this morning. Uh, So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. If you weren't with us last week, um, we missed you. Uh, we, we had an amazing time. We, gr- we gathered over at Grace Hill Church uh, in Merton for our very first baptism service, and it was, um, man, if you were there, m- my heart was so encouraged and blessed by what we got to partake in as we heard the stories of what God has done in the lives of his people, as he's called people to himself, as he's brought transformation into their lives, uh, seeing the sweetness of the testimonies, the honesty of the testimonies, and then witnessing the obedience as people followed the Lord Jesus in baptism. It was a sweet thing, and so if you weren't there, sorry that you missed it, Um, but glad that you're here today. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of a sense of where we're going, next week we're going to begin our Advent series uh, leading up to Christmas, and so join us for that. But today we're finishing up uh, our brief look at the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, uh, we talked in depth about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what 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 we talked about was the idea that the Holy Spirit is entirely responsible in the life of the believer for the work of regeneration, That what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection was applied to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and that God loves us so intensely and so deeply and so practically that he actually sent his spirit to come and dwell us as his people. That the spirit applies the work of Jesus Christ to our hearts and that in everything the spirit points us to Jesus Christ. And last week, if you were with us, uh, what we talked about briefly was the idea that, that we were witnessing a demonstration of what the Holy Spirit had done in lives through the waters of baptism. That as people entered into the baptismal waters, it was demonstrative of the fact that their old nature, their old person had died with Jesus Christ on the cross and that as they were brought out of the baptismal waters, it was representative of the regeneration, the new life that only Christ can give us and that only the Holy Spirit can apply to us. And so today, as we come to Galatians chapter 5, we come to a text that is incredibly familiar. 
So as we, were, as we were reading this this morning, I could hear people actually quoting along with the fruit of the Spirit. And that is certainly the portion of this text that is the most familiar to us. But it's actually not the thrust of this morning of what we're going to talk about. It's implied and we'll kind of brush on the topic of the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But we're going to talk about something just slightly different from this text this morning. And the question that I want us to be asking ourselves as we approach Galatians chapter 5 this morning is, since the Holy Spirit has indwelled us, how then does he lead us to live? What does the Holy Spirit do in us that the law, in the terms of Galatians chapter 5, could not do for us? What is the Spirit leading us into, specifically in terms of obedience in the Christian life? And the idea behind this text, kind of the overarching theme of this, is that a life that honors God is not produced by your efforts towards good behavior, but by the Holy Spirit's transformation of your affections, your very desires. And to some, even as I say that, that sounds strange. Because perhaps you're with us and you're just exploring faith or exploring the Bible for the first time and you don't know Jesus Christ, you wouldn't make any claims to knowing Jesus and your whole experience of God to the extent that you understand who he is begins and ends with moral requirements. And so to hear somebody say that a life that honors God is not produced by your own effort toward good behavior is counter to your presumption. And for others, the statement rings true with your experience. You're able to look back at your life and say, man, I remember trying to live the Christian life in my own power, in my own strength, doing the right things, living in a way that was morally upright, pleasing God through my own efforts. And I realize that the end of that path is failure and I've now experienced the joy of what the Spirit has brought into my life through the power of Jesus Christ. And for others, and if I had to guess, I would say it's a fair number of people in this room. You would say that you know that this idea is true, but perhaps you haven't personally experienced the freedom that it produces. And so my heart and my hope is that as we look at this text this morning, that the Holy Spirit begins to draw out these truths and apply them to our hearts because for many, especially those of you who have right beliefs and right doctrine and you can, you can write out the specifics of your theology on paper, you may know all of the right things but maybe you haven't tasted of the joys of spirit-filled Christianity. And maybe the bonds of religion cling so tightly to your soul that you find yourself at once racked with guilt over wrongdoing, and yet impotent to change your desires. And so let's see how this begins to play out in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Here's what it says. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And that language at the end is so fascinating and it's so practical because just remember for a moment that as Paul writes this letter uh, to the church at Galatia, he is writing to a group of Christians. 
In other words, this instruction that he's just written here is not written to people who are maybe on the border of becoming Christians or, or maybe would deny God altogether. He is writing to people who believe in Jesus Christ, who have experienced and tasted the goodness of the Holy Spirit, certainly have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, and yet he describes the conundrum of the Christian life where he says, in this moment you find yourself weak. Because in your soul there is a war going on between the flesh and the spirit. And the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the spirit are against the flesh. And because there is this opposition, this war going on within you, it keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. And if you read that, for me at least, my mind immediately jumped to Romans chapter 7 where Paul writes to the church at Rome and he confesses to them publicly and confesses for us 2,000 years later, this apostle Paul who had this amazing, incredible, miraculous encounter with Jesus Christ himself, that Paul confesses that there are all these things that he knows he ought to do, but he doesn't do them. And likewise, there are all of these things that he knows he should not do, and he finds himself doing them. And we see this play out in our own lives dozens of ways daily. And so for some of us, it's the realization that I know I have an anger problem. I know my temper tends to flare. I know when my family does these particular things or my boss says this certain thing, I know it triggers something within me. So I'm going to count to ten and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to be nice. Right? And for others of you, you say, man, I have a... I have a lust issue and I just know it's in my heart and it's something that I've battled for years, but this is the day that I'm going to work hard to keep my eyes and my mind pure. I'm going to start a new pattern today. And for others of you, you say, I know I have a control issue and I know that I want to micromanage every element of my life and every person in my life and every outcome of my life. I want to be in charge of everything. I want control. I don't want to feel like somebody else is pulling the strings. And so you say, you know what, today's the day I'm going to let go of all of that. I'm going to trust God. And for others of you, maybe it's an even more visceral experience. Maybe you'd say, man, I know I have an addiction, and I'm just working really, really hard to abstain. And the problem, the problem with all of those heart attitudes and with all of those motivations is ultimately that guilt is a terrible motivator. Guilt can only carry you so far, and guilt can only see you through to a certain point. And the problem is that if you fight that battle on your own, driven by the own guilt of your heart or your conscience that you experience, it will leave you frustrated and still dominated. And some of you say, no, 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 that's not true because I know that I've actually licked the problem in in my life. I used to have an anger issue and now I'm a really quiet person and I just did that by doing all of these different things in my life. And my answer would be, is there a sense of pride even as you say that? Because if you're able to do it on your own, if you're able to dominate your own life and white-knuckle your way through it as a demonstration that on some sense or another you believe you hold the answer to your own life, it's a declaration that you, in fact, don't need God. And for some of you, even as you hear the words of Galatians chapter 5, it sounds like a noose to your ears. 
because all you hear in this moment is, do not gratify the desires of your flesh. And if you walk away just hearing those words this morning, understand that sense of guilt, the sense of domination, the sense that you have no control of your life and that you are desperately trying to grasp it, it will only increase. But notice the instruction that Paul actually gives because he doesn't start by saying, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice what he says. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, the result of walking in the Spirit is that you will not be controlled by your own desires. Now the natural question is, okay, then how do we do this? Look at verse 18, and this is where everything gets very fascinating. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now this is strange language to our modern ears because this is this is unexpected in its delivery. I mean, we expect Paul to rightly condemn the works of the flesh, should do what he does in verses 19 through 21, where he says whether it's idolatry or anger or jealousy or envy or drunkenness or sexual sin, we expect Paul to condemn those things. But what Paul says is though those behaviors are in fact an issue and though they present a problem in your life, understand this, they are not the root problem. So when you understand that you have an anger issue and you determine in your own mind and by your own strength to overcome that anger issue, realize that you are just wrestling with the fruit of something far deeper in your life. That as Luther said it, there is a sin underneath the sin There's something far more deep-rooted and broken going on underneath the surface. So the real problem, according to Paul, is that you are living in slavery to the law. Now again, that's unexpected to our ears. We don't expect him to go there. But the question needs to be then, what is the law in this context? And just to give you a little bit of background on the book of Galatia, what we're told in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is that it is for freedom that we have been set free. In other words, we are no longer bound up by the law of God as our means of salvation. The means of salvation was never through the law. And the law is in and of itself the instruction that God gives us to reveal his holiness and to reveal our need. The law is inherently a good thing, not a bad thing. All you have to do is look at something like the Ten Commandments to walk away realizing that there's inherent value both for the individual and for the community. I mean, does anyone think that the command not to murder is a bad thing? Does anyone think that it's okay to live a life of constant theft and dishonesty? I mean, does anyone think that it's healthy for your marriage to step outside of your covenant and be with someone else who is not your spouse? Well, of course not, no. But the problem remains that all of us struggle with the instructions of the law to some extent or another. And understand this. If you're here this morning and you say, no, 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 I don't struggle with those things, remember what Jesus himself clarifies in Matthew chapter 5. Because he goes so far as to say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if if you look after a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. He says, if you hate someone, it's as if you've committed murder already in your heart. That the sins of our soul are not just the external behaviors of our life, but they're, they're the motivations and the intentions and the attitudes as well. And even if you're here this morning and you say, I don't even believe in any of this. 
I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the Bible. There is no law for me. Understand this. You have a law as well. That there is some moral code by which you live your life. That there is some guiding principle that you would declare is the right way to live. That there are certain behaviors that you would certainly condemn. That there are attitudes and thoughts that you wouldn't stand for. And yet, if we just very simply followed you around with a recorder for the next month, are you telling me there is no instance in your life where you don't violate your own standard of righteousness? Of course not. So here's the obvious question. If we can agree that the law is inherently a good thing and yet we struggle to obey it, what is the value of the law? So let me try to illustrate it to you this way. And this is an embarrassing confession. I'm not the handiest guy ever. All right, now for some of you that's not a surprise because you've helped me with things. And for some of you it is a surprise and I'm sorry. But my skill set is pretty much limited to reading and then talking about the things that I've read. That's pretty much, if you had to sum up the things that I think I'm okay at, that's pretty much all that I can do. And what that means is that when there are things that need to be fixed, generally I've got to find some help to get those things done. I've got to pay somebody to do it, or I've got to find someone who knows how to do it, and maybe they can teach me how to do it. But cars in particular present a mystery for me. All right, so I can change oil, uh, I, I could change a tire, maybe on a good day with some help I could change the brakes, but... Anything beyond that, I'm pretty much helpless. I mean, I'm sunk if something goes wrong. And so what I did a, a couple years ago is I got this handy little adapter that I plug uh, into the computer port of my, uh, computer port of my car. Um, and if something goes wrong or the check engine light goes on, it dings my phone and it tells me, hey, you've got this issue with your car, which is fantastic. But the problem is I still don't know how to fix it. It does not give me the ability to fix what I know is broken. And the law operates very much like that. It can expose what's broken. It can reveal God's expectations. It can reveal his holy law. It can reveal, can reveal who he is and who then we were created to be, but it can do nothing inherently to fix what's broken. See, the law is valuable because it reveals where you're lacking but the law is completely impotent to affect change. And so ultimately what the law does in your life is it screams out to you that you need a savior. It's a signpost in your heart directing you to the fact that you are unable to provide for yourself what you most desperately need. And ultimately, the law is a pointer to Christ. It reminds us of what Christ did for us, that he fulfilled the law, that he died on the cross, that he took on his own body the law's penalty on our behalf, as we talked about two weeks ago, and that he rose from the dead to bring us into new life. And so in doing this, understand that Jesus ushered in an entirely new covenant. And this is what Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about specifically. I'll read it for you. But here was the prophecy given before the coming of Christ. And here's what God promises his people. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. 
See, in order to live a life pleasing to God, we needed something more powerful than the law. We didn't need an external constraint. We needed an internal one. And the law for the new covenant Christian is no longer the external law given to us, but the internal law of the Spirit. Paul's going to flesh that out in Romans chapter 8, and beginning in verse 5, and you can turn in Romans 8 if you'd like, because we're going to be there for a little bit. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. He says, when, when, when Christ died for your sins, when he paid the full penalty of the law, when he took on you every violation of the law that you've ever committed, when, when the Holy Spirit applied that work to your heart and applied the, the perfect life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus to you and put the Spirit of God within you, he gave you a whole new desire a whole new set of motivations and a a whole new set of affections and a whole new set of loves in your heart and in your life so that when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer the change that you most desperately needed was granted in a matter beyond what you could have possibly imagined that that is how generous and how gracious our God is And understand that this work of the Holy Spirit is not some new power that we need access to in the Christian life. There isn't some additional prayer we need to pray to receive it. This is the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit demonstrating itself extraordinarily in the life of the believer. I mean, think again about who Paul is writing to. He's writing to a young, fledgling church in Galatia. He's writing to people who had far less biblical knowledge than we have access to today. He's writing to a people who had no understanding of a cultural Christianity surrounding them. They had no Christian history to look back on. And yet Paul, in all of his talking about the Spirit and the law, he never for a moment even hints at the fact that they are somehow lacking. Because his confidence in the presence and the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit is so powerful and so visceral and so real that he is confident that the work that had begun in these young believers' lives would continue to its completion. And look at the change that's brought about in them through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 24 of Galatians 5. You can keep your finger in Romans 8 if you like. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That little phrase, keep in step or walk with, as it may be translated, it literally means to walk in line one with another. I mean, as a kid, I, I remember playing the game where um, a teacher or, or, or a particular student would say, we're going to play a game called Follow the Leader. And I don't know if this is something that just we played and somebody made it up or if this is a game that people play, but what would happen is the kid or the person at the front of the line um, would begin walking or running, and he might make airplane motions with his hands or do a spin at a certain point. And if you were following him in line, you had to do the same thing that the person in front did. And in kind of a simple way, this is the picture that we're being given of what it is to keep in step with the Spirit. 
that we are walking along with him, that we're following in his footsteps, that he is growing us and maturing us in every facet of our life, that there is nothing in us that goes untouched by the power of the gospel. So the Holy Spirit not only indwells us, but in addition, in his goodness, he guides us. So with all of this talk about the law and the spirit and the law not being capable and the spirit bringing life and all of these different things, is the suggestion then that we as Christians ought to just live however we want. That the instruction of God to our righteousness is of no value and no meaning? Well, certainly it can't mean that, but then what is the freedom that the Holy Spirit brings? And we'll find the answers to both of those problems in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. And here's how Paul starts in that chapter. He says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, this is what we celebrated last week at the baptism, that when the Holy Spirit comes in and regenerates and makes new and recreates, when he begins in you a brand new work and brings about a whole new person, when he brings to life what was once dead, in the very same moment, he is freeing you from the dominance of sin and death. That the law of sin and death, the things that we are assured of in this life, no longer have control or power over us. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now listen to this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So understand what Paul just said here. He said, Jesus set you free from the penalty of sin when he died and rose again. And in the very same way, when the Holy Spirit indwells your life, he sets you free from the power of sin. The penalty of sin taken away by Christ, the power of sin being removed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. That what you and I, given all the lifetimes in all the world, were incapable of doing for ourselves, Jesus accomplished perfectly. That he fulfilled every requirement and every standard, every jot and tittle, the Bible is going to say, was accomplished and finished by him. And that, if that as if that wasn't enough, he gave us the Holy Spirit who leads us into joyful obedience in him. See, for those of you who wrestle, who would identify with the description that I gave earlier that to live a life pleasing to God is not of your own work, but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who would say yes and amen, but have never tasted and experienced the goodness of that, this is where the breakdown occurs. This is the difference between Christianity and religion. Because religion is going to declare, don't participate in these behaviors, do these certain things, look this particular way, have this particular manner of speech, go to this place on this date, and if you do those things, God will love you. And understand something, when we approach God through the lens of religion, we turn him into a divine umpire calling balls and strikes on our life where he just sits in condemnation waiting for you to mess up, expecting you to fail and to fall, to squash you when it happens. 
But Christianity is wholly different than religion. Because the experience of the spirit-filled Christian is not just mere adherence to an external law, but it is a new inward desire and craving for an entirely new way of life. That our very affections are changed. That our desires at a root level are altered. That our motivations have shifted. And that what we now live for is different. That love and joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithness, meekness, temperance are now the outgrowth of the Spirit's work in our hearts. See, the problem with attacking the fruit instead of the root is that fruit continues to grow back. And so when you identify particular sins in your life and you identify your own plan of attack to overcome those, those sins, it's as if you're pulling the fruit off the tree, but you're leaving the tree there. And the message of the gospel is the old man, everything that was you has been crucified with Christ on the cross, that you are no longer even that person anymore. And so because you have new motivations and new desires and because you have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the pre- through the presence of the Holy Spirit, new fruit begins to be born into your life. So understand that the way this passage is often taught, where we're given all of these fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and long-suffering, and so often the application of those sorts of sermons is, which fruit do you need to work on? That is the wrong question. Because it presumes that you of your own power can put fruit on the tree, rather than having that fruit be produced by what Christ has accomplished and what the Spirit brings forth in you. You see, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that enabled David to say, your law is like honey to my lips. I mean, why would he say something like that? Something that we think about as being dry and dead. How is it that David can say, it's like honey to my lips? It's because when we obey God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit, in that moment, we are communing with God himself. And in spirit-filled obedience, we are dependent on the finished work of Christ. We are dependent on the ever-present help of the Holy Spirit. We are dependent on the goodness of God in giving us instruction that leads us to joy and delight. And when we understand that what Jesus did on our behalf changed everything, it turns mere obedience into pleasure. Because when the Holy Spirit illuminates my heart to see the depth of depravity in my own soul, my own hopelessness and helplessness, and when that very same Holy Spirit reveals the beauty and the wonder of what Christ accomplished on my behalf, I cannot help but desire to want to serve and obey. There's an old hymn that says it this way, to see the law in Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child 
and duty into choice. You see, it's no longer an obligation, it's a pleasure. Do you understand, brother or sister, that God is not glorified when you, when you reluctantly concede to his instruction? That when, like an angry child, you knuckle under and give in, there's no glory brought to God in that moment. Because fear could be driving that, a desire for God's affection, as if you didn't already have it, could be motivating that. But when you joyfully submit, there's incredible glory given to God and incredible joy to be experienced. And the Spirit is now enabling us to live for God in a new, free, and joyful way. So the question that I want us to consider as we think about this text this morning is this, am I keeping in step with the Spirit? With the Holy Spirit giving testament to my heart of the truth of God's word. As Roman 8 says, as he, as he gives me evidence in my own heart, his very presence being evidence of the fact that I know God, that I'm a new person, that everything in me and about me has been changed, am I continuing to trust and lean and depend on that Holy Spirit? To guide me into truth, to guide me into obedience, to guide me into joy. Because understand this, in doing so, we emulate Christ's own obedience. I mean, where it says in Philippians, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking uh, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that is the model and the example that we're called to follow in. And it's that obedience, brother and sister, that we remember as we come to the Lord's table. As we step to this table, we remember Christ's faithful, self-emptying obedience. That as we take of the juice or wine, we remember the blood that was shed. That as we partake of the bread, we think about his body that was given for us holding nothing back. And that it's both at once a somber remembrance and a lively celebration of the things that he's brought about. We're going to take a few minutes to sit in silence for you to be with God through the Spirit. And this isn't some magical thing. This is the ordinary walk of the Christian life though it is truly extraordinary. So would you take a few minutes to consider what we're about to do, to spend time with the Lord that we serve and love, and then when the music begins, you may enter.